Welcome back to the Laravel Podcast Season 4. Today we are talking security, super important, with Rizki Jamaluddin, a UX designer, but also a longtime Laravel community member who knows a ton about security. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back to the Laravel Podcast Season 4, where every single episode is about a specific topic. And today we're talking about security, which, uh, to be honest, I feel like I don't know as well as I want. This is one of the ones where I really lean on the framework and our existing tooling to teach us about this. And I want to know more about what's going on. So I am super excited about this one because more than ever, I'm going to be learning today. So today my guest is Rizki Jamaluddin. He lives in Indonesia right now, so it is 8.30 his time in the evening. It's 8.30 my time in the morning. We are making this happen. And I'm really excited to have him here and learn from him. So Rizki, if you meet somebody in the grocery store, if, if that's the thing you do these days, how do you tell people about what you actually do? Hey, Matt. Yeah. I honestly, when I run into people and they ask me what I do, I just go ahead and tell them I work with computers and I help you work with computers better. Could you tell us a little bit more? Because I, I think that you you uniquely have a, a very specific role. A lot of us are not just, but we're just application programmers or website developers. Tell us a little bit more about what you actually do. <laughs> so I have both feet in both worlds. I'm a bit of a designer. I'm a bit of a developer. I do a lot of back end. I do a lot of front end. I do a lot of security. I do a lot of privacy. And most importantly, I'm a tech advocate and I try to talk to people and explain to them how they need to be more technology conscious, more privacy conscious, and how they should think differently about their organizations. Yeah. That's very cool. And, and I asked you this before the call, but I was asking uh, what sort of organizations you do tend to work with more. And I don't know if you wouldn't mind uh, just sharing real quick about what type of groups you normally work with. I work most with schools, healthcare, policymakers, you know, all the big lumbering organizations who are still feeling out of 21st century, especially here in the developing world. Yeah. And the time spent assisting those groups have the really significant impact on the broadest population, right? Like you have a lot of opportunity to be impactful on a lot of people by helping those groups be tech literate. So that's really cool. Absolutely. That's why we do it. Because a lot of people don't know that Indonesia is the world, I think, third or fourth most populous country. We're like right behind the U.S. Really? So that, I think that puts wow. us fourth or fifth, somewhere around there. And yeah. so we have a lot of people who need catching up. You probably don't hear about Indonesia a lot because we tend to be quite quiet no. people. We don't really stand up very much, uh, at least compared yeah. to our compatriots like, say, in India and China. And so this is yeah. part of it. I'm trying to help everybody catch up. But I do travel around quite a bit, a lot, a lot of developing countries, but mm -hmm. also to Europe, to the U.S., and just helping people understand a bit more about technology. Okay, that's really cool. I, I mean, I, I wish I, I told you this at the beginning, but I wish I had you on last season because I feel like I want an entire episode just about you and your backstory. But well, hopefully, <laughs> little bits will come out through this. So, mm. so you know, the first thing at the beginning of every single episode this season is to talk about what it would look like to explain your concept to a five-year-old. So, so mm. your concept, security, is, is pretty big. I'm guessing you've thought about this at least a little bit, but I think I would ask if you were talking about security in software, and you can decide to focus primarily on Laravel or whatever, but I know that you have some broader ideas about this. So let's just talk about whatever makes sense to your brain. If you wanted to explain the security concept to a five-year-old, how would you go about it? Well, five-year-old, okay, so little Timmy, he has his favorite yellow security <laughs> blanket, right? So he has to sleep right. with that. If he doesn't sleep with that, he'll be all night knocking on daddy's door. No kidding. He needs to keep that safe from the evil dust bunnies and the mean big brothers who are out for blood. <laughs> He sashes it in his toy box, hides it down the bottom. The problem is he needs a way to make sure he can get to the blanket, but other people can't. And yeah. when you're dealing with those mean big brothers, man, or those dust bunnies, they are wicked beasts. And yes. so they will try whatever they can do to get that blanket, and they, will, they might break stuff. They might try to steal it. They might try to pretend to be your parents and say the blanket needs to be mm -hmm. washed, but you really don't want to wash it. 
So yeah. security is all about how do you make sure only you have access to that little security blanket, which is very valuable to you, and not everybody else. And surprisingly, you can make a whole job out of that, apparently. Yeah, turns out. Turns out. I, I wish I had I wish I had a soundboard because I would have done an <laughs> applause soundboard. That was fantastic. I love it because you didn't just tell us about the fact that you want to keep it safe. You also have to think about you need access to the thing when everybody else doesn't need it. Because if it's just safe, right, that's one thing. You're just, you know, barricaded or whatever. But it's it's the idea that you need access. Other people don't need access. People may be pretending like, oh, my goodness, mm. that was good. All right. So let's dial down a little bit now into the concept of security in the context of building web applications using Laravel. Can you tell me a little bit about what kind of concerns, higher level or specific or whatever, as you think about like just an average Laravel programmer who uses Laravel day to day, either the benefits they're getting from Laravel or the things they need to be thinking about that they're not getting from Laravel? Like where does your brain go about like the big understandings and groupings of what security really looks like as a web application developer? Right. So when you're looking at web applications, there's always these big uh, handful of concerns which we hear day to day in the news. And I'll get to that in a moment. But I also want to hint a little bit of foreshadowing here that we will also be talking about how you should be designing your app in a way that should be useful because stuff is only as strong as it is well designed. And so in terms of raw security, as you need to be thinking while you're coding, the most, imp most common cases we'll hear about nowadays, you, you'll hear about cross-site scripting, you'll hear about SQL mm -hmm. injection, and you'll, you'll hear a lot about file uploads. Those are the three most common problems by far, which affect yeah. Laravel applications. Yeah, that's good. And I mean, a, a lot of us have probably at various points seen, you know, verify, you know, CSRF tokens or whatever. You, you, even if you don't exactly know what you're being protected from, you know some of those things are in there. I don't know if there's anything that specifically says XSS in the code base, but but a lot of those things were being, were, were being kind of like given the benefit. And that's one of the things I love about working with open source is we're being given the benefit of decades of security research figuring out what the best practices are and embedded them into our thing. But again, like I said at the beginning, I feel like sometimes that can lull us into a sense of complacency, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, well, I'm totally good. So I thought one of the cool things we could maybe start with is could you share with us a little bit about what are the things, um, we'll maybe start from the angle of what are we already protected from? Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I think that's beneficial is that I'll often, at, at Titan, will often inherit somebody else's code base, where instead of using what came in from Laravel from scratch, they will build something on their own. Um, and the thing that they built on their own doesn't get this benefits that we all get for free if we just use Laravel. So maybe could we start a little bit from the perspective of what are the things that are already integrated in a framework like Laravel that it's giving us protection from, both so we know what's going on, but also so that we don't accidentally subvert the natural protections we have. And maybe then we can go from there to talk a little bit about what you're talking about, which is how to design our applications in a way that helps us continue that the security coverage. Absolutely, Matt. Because, and this is, I think, the big overarching theme here, which uh, people need to understand, is that Laravel affords us so many conveniences that mm -hmm. often we're most vulnerable when we're trying to circumvent it for some particular reason, and that's when the security comes through. Yeah, exactly. So maybe if we start with, for example, SQL injection. Most of the okay. time, if we're working with a web app which talks to a database, we'll just be using Eloquent. And Eloquent is fantastic. You basically can't really mess up with Eloquent because it pre-prepares every statement that goes through it. And you yep. can basically just take user input, you'll do your normal validation on top, and then you can push it into Eloquent and make your normal requests. That's normally perfectly fine. And this is also why security is often quite tricky because a lot of newcomers who come into it don't understand which feels right and which feels wrong. And to a lot of yeah. PHP developers, 
seeing a DB query and then a dollar get is a very alarming thing to see. But Laravel <laughs> yeah, provides for that. Yeah, uh-huh. a lot of yeah. a lot of programmers seeing that will just back away slowly from before the incoming yeah. explosion. But for Laravel, you need to be careful whenever you are passing in anything with the database raw or you're doing unprepared mm-hmm. statements. Those are where they mm-hmm. slip in. And this especially happens because people are making more and more complex apps and early on they're fine because they're using normal database queries. And as they get more yep. and more complex, you have these all these complex monster queries running around and you're using dbraw to push stuff in and that's when it happens. That's great, yeah. The, and, the, and it's if you have graduated from the point of writing simple eloquent to writing something so complicated that you don't know how to do it without raw, but you have not been educated that raw is not protecting you anymore. You could make that step without realizing all of a sudden I'm unprotected. That's a really, really great point. And, and can you give us a real quick example? Because I think a lot of listeners maybe actually haven't even heard of what SQL injection is. Can you give a real quick example of what a context for SQL injection might look like? Right. So SQL injection at its core works because SQL runs off a simple string. It's a simple instruction set for SQL. Normally, Mm -hmm. whenever we're talking with Laravel, we'll be able to say that if you're updating a certain value, we'll just be able to pass in an identifier, and that is automatically filtered by Laravel. When you're doing DB raw, however, you are assembling that string manually. You are actually like using string functions to put it together. And when you're doing that, you're losing that automatic security. So for example, whenever you do a standard query in Laravel, it'll automatically escape. And that means characters which are not safe in a query are automatically sanitized. But yep. when you do DB raw, you're telling Laravel, let me hold the controls, turn on sports mode, let me do what I want to do. <laughs> and that's where it gets I tricky. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's a great point. And one of the things you mentioned earlier is that if you're seeing dollar, you know, underscore git. So for anybody who's, again, not an old school PHP programmer, what he means is user provided input, right? A form that they submitted or a query parameter. If you are passing that directly into your string that you're building on sports mode without the protections that Laravel provides, somebody could theoretically pass in a string to your email field that is, you know, semicolon drop you know, Bobby, you know, Bobby tables, drop table or whatever. So basically they could, they could pass in destructive SQL. Um, and if you're not escaping it, they can all of a sudden take control of, or, or completely delete your entire table database or something like that. So, all right. So you talked about SQL injection. That's a good one. So the big warning with SQL injection is the moment DB you raw. use DB raw, you now have to know what you're doing to, to escape things. That's a good easy one. I can also give yeah. you a hint how to quickly check if you have that problem. And this is okay. something hackers do all the time. If you can put input through how, for example, if you're to have a page where you're displaying people's profile based on their email or based on a user ID, if you try to put certain characters within that user ID, the most common being quotes or backticks, and there's a whole bunch you can look up like SQL testing uh, strings. Oh, yeah. You can put them in and you can see if your application responds predictably. Like if it, does, it probably doesn't exist if user uh, close quote semicolon probably doesn't exist in your app. And if that happens, then it should probably show a 404. But if your app behaves weirdly, then that means you have a vulnerability and you should patch it. This is also why I tell people the best way to deal with security injection flaws is to have automated testing because that's easy to do. You can have an automated test. What happens if this input comes in? And based off of Mm -hmm. that alone, you can just have that test. And whenever you're coding in the future, run a test again. Oh, I'm still safe. Run a test again. I'm still safe. That's awesome. I've, I've... 
when I was first building Karani, which is um, the first software as a service I ever built and actually charged money for it, I didn't know any of this stuff, and it was on CodeIgniter. Laravel didn't exist. And I ended up paying a group $3,500 to do a, like an automated penetration test, and that was not in my budget at that point. And so <laughs> I'm super curious, maybe down the road or maybe at the end when I ask for resources, if you can help us think through what are some good ways to set up those automated tests ourselves, or if there are more affordable automated suites that we can think about. You mentioned one, one option would be just Google common SQL um, you know, uh, error. You know, maybe we'll put some links in the show notes or something like that. But it'd be very cool if we can kind of give some resources for how to set up those sorts of tests generically on every website you have without paying $3,500 every, <laughs> on every single website you build. So that's awesome. Um, all right, so moving on from SQL injection, what do you think is the next thing we should be thinking about in terms of that we're normally protected from in Laravel? Probably by far, and this is the more catastrophic one, because when people make mistakes for SQL injection, then usually the database gets leaked. That's the worst possible scenario. But yeah. if you screw up and let people upload arbitrary files to your server, which they can execute, they gain the mm -hmm. keys to the kingdom. If people do a yeah. SQL injection, they don't get your app keys most of the time because that's in the environment. Yeah. But if bad file uploads happen and everybody has a file upload yeah. on their system, suddenly yeah. if people are able to upload malicious files, all hell breaks loose. It's very difficult to defend yeah. against those, but there are tricks around it. Okay, so before we even talk about the tricks, can you talk about what's, because I, I bet with file uploads, there's some that are catastrophically bad, some that are medium bad, and some where it's totally protected. So mm. if I was building a file upload and I wanted somebody be, to be able to upload things and we haven't decided whether or not that thing's going to be publicly accessible yet, we haven't yet set up any validation, can you talk through like what is more problematic, what's more catastrophic in terms of file uploads and what's maybe like medium bad and what's like, hey, this is totally locked down before, and then you can give us all those trips, tricks, if you sure. or if that, maybe if that's part of it. Sure. So the worst case scenario in a file upload is someone uploads an executable file because right. we've all seen that when we're early on being a developer, right? They would always tell you, pull up Notepad and type open angle bracket HTML, close bracket HTML, and then save, yep. and then go to your file, right click, rename, and then change the TXT to HTML. And the problem is yep. that applies everywhere. A lot of misconfigured servers will just execute any file which it thinks is a script file. And so if mm -hmm. you have managed to upload a script file, and remember, even legitimate files like images and audios and all sorts of formats often have a bit of part of their file which may contain the comments or arbitrary information. And yeah. that's where the payloads sneak in. And those are the worst case scenarios. Yeah. The middle case scenarios are one of the most easy ways to try to break an application is just what happens if I send them a one gigabyte image? In that, in that upload oh, file, yeah. what happens if I send them a really big problematic file or just something that's full of errors. And that can take yeah. down servers, that can bump up your AWS budget, that can take down yeah. uh, people's accounts, it might cause corruption, huh. it might cause all sorts of fun, uh, fun toys. Yeah. And on the minimum side, there's not really much that can happen, but you've seen situations where uh, people would find, for example, in a forum where people can only upload JPEGs, it turns out this one guy has uploaded a GIF. And then mm -hmm. all the users are like, What's happening? This guy's hacked the server. He's a <laughs> hacker, and this erodes your uh -huh. confidence in your in your application and in your oh, platform. Oh, got it. Okay. Those are There's one issues. other one that I just happened to run into recently, where somebody had allowed 
users to upload only certain types of things, non-executable, but HTML mm. was one of them. So it was Ooh. semi-executable. And so every single user could upload HTML files into like a publicly accessible directory. And so now people could build websites pretending to be under his website because it was mm. his website.com slash storage slash whatever slash whatever you want on HTML. Mm. And so people were uploading stuff into there and pretending to be him. So yeah. And I guess that falls in the executable, right? But I, I tend to think of executable as like you uploaded a PHP file and somebody could do mm. anything in your server. HTML is a little bit less scary, but they still were able to do it to do some really nasty stuff. So yeah, that's a um, that's a great list. And remember, so, because okay. of same because okay. of same source origin policy, just an HTML oh, file yeah. uploaded on your server has basically all the rights of. Well, I guess it goes straight into XSS, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, which we haven't covered yet. But when mm. we get to XSS, look back on this moment, and that that's gonna that's gonna be a dangerous thing. If somebody can serve arbitrary HTML from your domain, you're not in good shape for that. So mm. okay, but you were about before I asked you to give us those those worst, you know, best whatever. Could you share a little bit about what your you you gave us? I think you think you're gonna give some tricks about how to think about you know mm. a, avoiding some of those problems. Well, Matt, I'll tell you the best trick in the book, which is put All it right. on AWS or some other platform. Because oh, yeah, I didn't think about that. It's actually a lot easier than people think, especially a lot of younger developers think, oh, I need to go out, I need to go register and they've heard all those nightmare stories about people configuring AWS. But uh-huh. it's actually quite simple and straightforward to set stuff up. And you can even have it so users can upload files without ever touching your server. So they can upload yeah. signed uploads straight to AWS. And because they're on AWS, they're not on your server and yep. they are just in a static place and they're easy to work with. That's the best tip That's- I can give. See, I told you I was going to learn a lot because I use AWS sometimes and S3 is super easy to set up, but I hadn't even thought about the fact that you instantly lose all of those security concerns when it's on AWS, not on your server. Yeah. That's really cool. Although you okay, still need so, to be careful of a few things because uh, okay. sometimes uh, this this goes this leaves security and enters trust, right? Like the example you had mm-hmm. earlier about HTML being in your uploads is although it might not be a security problem on its own because they're on your mm-hmm. website, that erodes trust, right? And yeah, so yeah. even if it's on, on S3, you still need to be a little bit careful. Be sure you validate. Just because it's on S3, you should still make sure about especially those file sizes and the file types you're allowing. Oh, yeah. But yes, it mm-hmm. removes so many attack vectors. Okay. I'm going to ask a very, very specific question only because I'm curious. And sorry if this disrupts you a little bit. But I remember reading that people were embedding executable code inside of JPEGs and mm. PDFs and some other things. Uh, do we have any native kind of way around that? Is Laravel validation covering for us? Is there something we can do to make sure that's not going to bite us? Laravel validation, I believe, uses PHPs. There is a mechanism for MIME type checking. I'm not 100% sure. But the key problem mm-hmm. here is even if there are built-in protections, which I'm sure there are some, it's very common as time goes on, and this, this becomes a disclaimer where I don't take my word for gospel. These attacks evolve yeah. daily and weekly, and it's yep, a totally. game of cat and mouse. Even in perfectly formulated files, it's perfectly possible to have an evil payload because it's possible mm-hmm. to have comments and metadata which are otherwise uh, not known. Yeah. So one of the notes there might be, no matter how much you think you're protected with file uploads, lock it down as much as you possibly can, mm. right? Like, if you don't have to allow somebody to arbitrarily, you know, view that JPEG or whatever, then just don't put it public in the first place, right? Absolutely. Okay, so upload to S3. Have you ever used Minio, by the way? M-I-N-I-O? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's basically a drop-in uh, S3 that you can manage on your own. I've heard about that. Yeah. So if anyone's not familiar, Titan, we made this tool called Takeout that allows you to really quickly spin up 
little Docker-based services locally. And one of the things I realized is that one of the things that keeps me from using S3 by default is because S3 by default is not as easy as uploading my local storage folder by default, right? S3 is super easy once you're actually like already setting up your production environments. But S3 in day one is maybe not quite as easy as just, just let it go where it goes by, on day one. But I was realizing that like if I were to start moving towards like an S3 upload by default policy, Minio might be that thing that allows me to get there. Like have a local Minio instance running managed on Docker, managed by takeout all the time. And then the moment I spin up a new app, I just connect it to my Minio. And when I'm ready to go to production, then th- when I'm pushing something up to Forge or whatever else, I'm much more comfortable with the idea of spinning up an S3 bucket and stuff like that. And if I've got a local Minio thing, maybe that would make it more comfortable. So I really appreciate you saying this because I'm now going to go take out enable Minio and I'm going to try that being my default for a while. So, Absolutely. That sounds like a um, good drop-in replacement while you're developing. Awesome. Do you have any, thank you, do you have any other pieces of this whole file uploads you want to talk about or do you feel like S3 is the magic ticket and we should move on to the next one? I have one other thing to add on. Well, two things. Yeah. First of all, this, this is basically a life pro tip. Don't listen to what people tell you when they tell you the chmod file uh, directory is on the internet because every yeah. other <laughs> tutorial will tell you it's fine. Just seven seven it, uh, triple seven it for a while, and nobody will ever notice. You, yeah. If if any new uh, new programmers are listening to this and you're trying to learn about I'm having permission issues, it's telling me I can't access a file. Take your time. Chmod is quite a tricky beast because it's not like the most intuitive thing, but you should take your time to understand yeah. what it means and why you need to have certain levels of access. And don't Mm -hmm. just willy-nilly upload it. The second thing I want to say is one of the most common mistakes, and we've seen these from very common breaches recently, is people will just take a file with the existing file name and upload it with the same file name. And so often file names contain important information. Sometimes there will be metadata left behind inside the file name. Sometimes Mm -hmm. if some people will just increment the file names, it'll be 1.jpg, 2.jpg, 3.jpg. But those are dangerous because you can do what's called an enumeration attack, which is when you just go one by one by one and pull out every file. And that's violating everybody's privacy. If any developers are looking for a way to limit access to a file, you want to look at either signing them if they're on S3 or if you are hosting them locally, look at uh, XXL as an X, as acceleration XL. And that's basically a way of putting your web server in front of a file and limiting who has access okay. to that particular file. A lot of developers rely entirely on obfuscation or unpredictable uh-huh. file names, and that's not really good yeah. enough. It's better than auto-incrementing, right? But it's Definitely. only a little bit better. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I've often done, which is not XSL, I don't think, is if I don't worry too much about the performance of these these images or whatever, I will actually like store them in a way that they're not publicly served, and I'll build like a PHP script in front of them that basically just says, "Is this user authenticated?" It does our normal ACL check, right? Is this user authenticated? Does this user have access to this image? If so, hmm. then it literally just returns the image as a stream, and then I set my cache headers so that they can actually get it. Um, but it sounds like SSL might be XSL might be more at the nginx level is that what yes what, can you tell us a little bit more about that okay so that's on an nginx level and all it basically boils down to is emitting a header and basically the request will hit your server first and you can basically emit mm-hmm. headers that tell nginx okay this person has passed the check now emit this file wow it requires a server configuration okay but it's basically like if anybody's familiar with the idea that a lot of requests will send like an options request before they actually send the real request. So you're going to tell Nginx for any files in this directory, 
you need to ping slash API slash me beforehand and make sure that it gets back a header that says, you know, whatever, XSL colon authenticated or whatever. And only if that user gets that response as yes or true or valid or whatever, then serve this. And otherwise, Nginx will give them like an unauthenticated. Absolutely. All you need to do is in the response header from Laravel, you just, you're going to need to pass an XXL redirect. It's also called XN file. They're kind of related. And basically uh-huh. pass a path to like slash storage, slash app, slash wherever you're storing it. And wow. within your PHP, you can emit the file. That's freaking amazing. I had absolutely no idea. Okay, cool. We'll put some um, links up to that in the show notes if I hopefully, fingers crossed, remember. Um, thank you. All right, you said there was two. Was there, was there another one you wanted to share about files, or was that the second one already? Uh, that was the second one. The first one is about okay. uh, the permissions issue. Oh, perfect. Yeah, and I would say that with permissions, I, I really appreciate you bringing that up. I don't think I have ever, in modern Laravel, maybe in some of the old days when we hadn't figured it all out, I don't think I've ever had to chmod any files or folders in Laravel. Mm. Like, if my local setup is good, and if I'm using a decent, you know, like, deploy system, the the the... the and if anybody doesn't know, the chmod is the thing that if you've ever like listed a list of files in your directory and it says rwx, rx, rx or whatever, it's talking about who can read and write these files, right? Um, and chmod changes that system and makes it so that everybody can read and write these files or only these people can or whatever. Um, and I don't think I've ever had to have to do that, right? I mean, do you ever use it on a day-to-day in, in applications it's, you're building? It's quite rare. I find it from my experience, most people run into this when they're setting up their local environments. And to be mm-hmm. clear, the modern developer experience of you know pulling down Docker and setting up everything through Valet, all these nice new tools, is actually kind of new. A lot of people start yeah. up with like just bare bones uh, Mac OS or even on Windows, whatever they can use. And that's when they run into yeah. those issues. And because they do yeah. them on their local, they'll see the same error on production and say, oh, I should that worked last time. I should yeah. do it again. And that's yeah. where it happens. Just HMOD again. Okay. Yeah. That's a great point. And that's, and that's another reason to consider using not just what are the built-in systems in Laravel, and if you use them, you get Laravel's protections, but even what are the modern development environments locally? Mm. Because if you if you have something like Valet, Valet or Homestead or whatever else, they're going to get your local environment set up so that the file permissions are correct, not too you know open, not too closed, and so you don't have to ever be in the tradition. And I use Valet every single day, and I never chmod anything. I use Forge for setting up my servers, and I never have to chmod anything. So that's a Absolutely. great point. Just avoid chmod unless you really know what you're doing. Yep. <laughs> I love that. All right, so we've talked about um, file uploads. We talked about um, database, like SQL insertion. What are the other kind of biggies that we're already protected from? So the third one, and this is the one which is also the th- like one of the most common attack vectors, is XSS, cross-site okay. scripting. And cross-site scripting at its heart is about when we allow users to emit information in our HTML, and it runs as the end user. Because, like for example, if you let people just dump whatever HTML they want out on their user profiles on Facebook, then whoever mm-hmm. views that page will run scripts as if that was Facebook sending it to them. And this yeah. is very common because early on when you're doing Laravel and you're using Blade, you are protected from this by default. By yep. default, and this isn't just Laravel, but basically any modern framework will assume that when you're emitting something, you don't do not want to allow any sort of HTML or any sort of Trojan horses living in there. So just as an example of how this attack would behave, imagine you have a great new idea for a big social network, and you're thinking, I'm going to let people customize all of their profile pages, and they can embed whatever they want, they can add whatever they want. 
and then a user comes up to you and says, "Hey, I want to have paragraphs and headings," and you're like, "Okay, I'm going to、mm-hmm. allow the strong tags so they can they can bold bits that they want," and then. Like okay,、um, can I have links and then can I have this? Can I have that? And then suddenly one day you realize the bold tag, the strong tag, allows a whole bunch of attributes which can contain code in them, and that code、yeah. executes as if you, the website owner, were telling the user's computer to run it, and that can just talk、yeah. to any server. That can dump out some data. It can leak basically、uh, everything the user has access to. Yeah. And、uh, with cross-site scripting, so I always get cross-site scripting and. Couple of the other ones mixed、CSRF. up, but cross site. Yeah. yeah, so CSRF and so a lot of them have to do with not just the ability to inject code, inject JavaScript, but also to decide whether you're acting as the origin or not, right? Mm, mm. So I'm going to be really honest with you. I, I've learned XSS, CSRF, and cores a million times, and I have in my head a little bit. But even right now, when you said this, I was like, "That's not what XSS is. XSS is cross site scripting, right?" And so that must be the one where somebody from another server. Post stuff over to my server, but that's not that. And so, why is this one called cross-site scripting when it's really just injection into my page? Do you know? Yeah, so it's called cross-site scripting just because they are injecting their stuff into your site. Okay, okay that's that's、it. as I understand it. That's、uh, where the where the confusion came from originally. There was a lot of、okay. the, the web security community is also quite up in arms about how confusing some of this terminology can be, as you'd probably expect. Uh, the、yep. other ones,、uh, cross-site request forgery. The keyword there is forgery, and that's when you lure、okay. somebody to their website and then you forge a request to another website as if they did. Okay, so that was where, like, let's say they're logged into my website, they go over to to the bad person's website,、mm. and then they hit submit on something, and it submits back to my website, but it submits stuff that they never would have wanted、yes. to submit, right, or、yes. something. Okay, cool. So that's CSRF. XSS, which is the one you're talking about right now, sorry to derail us,、no、is the one where we're allowing the users to actually echo their own arbitrary scripts into our、um, yes on our pages. Okay. Yes. So please continue about XSS and best practices there and everything. Cross-site scripting. Let's get back to cross-site scripting. By default, in Laravel, you're protected from that because all tutorials and all articles will tell you to use the double curly syntax. And what a double、mm-hmm. curly syntax will do is, if a user tried to say, "My name is open." Angle bracket strong close angle bracket risky, then it'll just show the actual angle brackets、yeah. in the output when the user sees it again, and that is a foiled XSS attack. That means、yeah. your server was able to identify that hey, that's just a username. You're not supposed、yeah. to parse that,、yep. and that's when it's been foiled. Now it becomes a bit of a tricky problem because Laravel does allow a format to emit unescaped data. And that、mm-hmm. is using the exclamation marks, and you should、yep. only use that when the data is coming from a trusted source. So, for example,、mm-hmm. if the data is coming back because you have a say an embed script or something which you yourself wrote down in the app, basically, if it comes、yep. from the database, don't do that. Yeah. And for our listeners who are using, say, Vue, for example, then Vue also has a similar setup. If you're using the double curlies in Vue, that is sanitized for you. You don't need to worry about、mm-hmm. cross-site scripting. But if you're using the VHTML attribute, the directive,、mm-hmm. then you are vulnerable.、Yeah. You should only use that if you can 100% trust the data coming back. Yeah, 
And if you do find yourself in a scenario where you have to allow the users, for example, to pass in HTML or something like that, you either need to work with entirely trusted users, like it's an internal tool, and then still then it's a little bit scary, or you have to all of a sudden now deal with like attribute parsing and bringing in a library that like sanitizes your HTML and all that, yeah. That that one in all particular right. comes up a lot because a lot of people yeah. ask me like, so you're telling me not to emit HTML. What if I want to let the people emit some HTML? Because the most common example mm -hmm. nowadays is Markdown. People will say, let yeah. me emit some uh, HTML, some basic HTML, and so people can use Markdown in comments, for example. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, little known fact, Markdown actually allows HTML. Like Markdown yes. was always designed to be a free text format. It allows you to just write HTML and it'll just give the HTML back. It does not check that for you. And so if you yep. are ever in a position where you need to sanitize your HTML, never do it alone. Uh, I personally mm -hmm. prefer the HTML purifier package for that. They have a lot of mm -hmm. really good checks and they will make they can yeah. even figure out this attribute is allowed on this tag, but not on this tag, for example. But uh -huh. never do it yourself. Always, always, always yeah. pick up a package. Yep, totally agreed. And HTML purifier, I'm glad you mentioned that name. I, I, we use it on at least one project and it's really wonderful to work with. And, and it's the same as all security stuff, right? Like you don't know all the things that could break. So, <laughs> so I, I want that like, don't do it by yourself is like definitely my mantra on anything security. So I appreciate you saying that. If, if I can add right, a horror so, story okay. while, while we're on this part. Uh, one of the most common things, I've seen this happen three times now in a year. And this is why I think I have to tell mm -hmm. you about it because I don't want any more people to make this mistake. One of the most common yeah. issues is nowadays when people make websites and with Vue, for example, they will want to make it support internationalization. So they'll take mm -hmm. a package like Vue IATN, and that will let them have string tables so different parts of the app will be translated and shown in different ways to different users of different locales. The problem mm -hmm. is some languages or some regions or some people will prefer formats in different orders, for example. So they might right. prefer to have the name of the year at the front. Some of them will have different time formats. Some of them just have all sorts of weird formats. And so often people will wind up having to use HTML in their translation strings, in their in the oh, files yeah. which are full of strings. And they're like, oh, it has HTML in it. If I just do double curlies, it just spits out the HTML as, a, as like a readable text. And that's not okay. So yeah. it should be fine. It's VHTML it, right? And that's where they get you. Yeah. So be yeah. double careful if you're dealing with anything like that. That's great. And I, and I love that's a really helpful thing because it's something I wouldn't have predicted. Right. And so it's just kind of keeps you in that same like if you're using DB raw, be very, very careful. Yep. If you're using curly brace with the exclamation points or V dash HTML or whatever else, be very, very careful because you don't even know what could potentially get in injected there. That's awesome. I mean, scary, but helpful to hear. <laughs> so, OK, so that's XSS cross site scripting. Mm. So what are our other concerns? So the cousin to cross-site scripting, uh, the one we alluded to earlier, is cross-site request forgery. And the keyword mm -hmm. there is forgery. This is basically another person tricking you into sending a command. So um, I play an MMORPG called Final Fantasy XIV. And very early okay. on in its lifetime, there was a bug where there's a market board where you can buy items. You can buy armor mm -hmm. and items for your character. And whenever you bought an item, your client would tell the server, hey, I, so-and-so name, would like to buy so-and-so item, five pieces. Uh -huh. yeah. Someone figured out the server doesn't check who sent that. All they know is the oh person says Risky is buying five potions. So they right. just, somebody else can come along and say, yo, server, Risky's buying 10 more potions or Risky's buying oh 50 goodness. potions from this guy. And that's basically how it works. 
Yeah. CSRF is when a user is trapped by any other website, uh, classically by faking mm -hmm. a, uh, an HTTP request to a trusted mm -hmm. server. But there's actually yeah. a lot of different variations to it. It's just all about tricking people. Okay. And the most common example I know of is, let's say that I was building this hacking site and I send an email to somebody or a Twitter link or something that says, hey, go check out my favorite site. And on that site, it has maybe an Axios request that sends hmm. that post over to the server that says, I logged in user. And since I'm logged into the, the, the marketplace, uh, it gets my, you know, whatever my information when I hmm. ping it there, want to buy 500 things from me, the hacker who's doing the thing. And all of a sudden, as a hacker, I make money. And you said there's a lot of other contexts. But is that like a good kind of understanding of at least one of the common yep. kind of vectors for it? Okay. Some of the most common ones is just because uh, one of the easiest ones to understand is some people will put, for example, logout as a get request. So you'll in your routes in Laravel, uh -huh. you'll have uh, route get slash logout, and it'll do the actual uh, logout of the user. Now, the thing is, mm -hmm. you know, get requests are not only sent when people talk to an API. They're also sent when people say get an image on the web, on the internet. So if somebody mm -hmm. makes an image tag and they set the SRC, the source, to that URL with the logout, because the logout was a get oh, URL, wow. they will log you out from <laughs> just by looking at that image. In the past, a lot uh -huh. of attacks worked that way. Just by making somebody look at a web page, you are sending get requests. Yeah. With, huh. and, and because of how get works, especially with stuff like cookies back in the day, you are fully authenticated. Any get yeah. route could be hit that way. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why, and I didn't even realize that, but that's one of the reasons why Git requests aren't supposed to have any impacts, right? Like mm. Git is only supposed to be reading. It's never your server should never be different as a result of a Git request, and mm. that's one of the that 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 design pattern lines up with, and therefore stuff can be sent along with Git requests that you probably don't realize is being sent along with it. Yep. Okay. Thank you. That's very helpful. So. What do we do to protect ourselves? What do we get for free? What work do we need to do? How should we be thinking about protecting ourselves from CSRF? So Laravel provides the token for, for CSRF. I think it's, uh, it's just in the default middleware. And so mm -hmm. as long as on the front end, if you are, send, if you are making any more uh, requests to the server once again, you should pass along that token to make sure that the server understands that the user is trustworthy. That's all really there mm -hmm. is to it. This is actually one of the attack types which are slowly becoming far less common. And I should probably say at this point, if you have an API where you're not using standard cookies, for example, to authenticate sessions with the server, if you're using an authentication token like a JWT or something like that, then you can use the JWT as the hidden token. Because when people make mm -hmm. that fake request, they have no way of grabbing your JWT, so they have no way of pretending right. to be you. The reason why the standard CSRF attack works so well is because whenever you hit one of those uh, get requests, your cookies are sent along with it. And those cookies are what are, mm -hmm. what are keeping your session intact. And so right. if you are using cookies, please use the token. And if you are not, then go ahead, use whatever token you are using to authenticate. Okay. But there's also for me, like I was, so I tend to think, and I want to make sure, I'm going to say this to you and make sure that I'm getting it right. <laughs> um, I tend to think that the, the, the cook, the, the, Sorry, that's what you just said handles APIs. But let's say I had just an endpoint that is like update user, you know, information mm -hmm. endpoint. And for some reason, somebody maliciously wanted to change my password. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so if I didn't have CSRS protection. So first of all, the big problem you said is if that was a git, it would obviously be a big problem. But let's say it's a post and I didn't have CSRS protection on and somehow they were actually able to trigger a post. That post would work 
whether or not things are being sent along with it because there's no way for that server to know that the request came from the same server, right? All it Absolutely. checks is, am I authenticated? And so that's where I think of CSRF protection as being the most helpful, is, and that's why that token is useful, is because the originating form has that CSRF token embedded into it, right? And there's yep. no way for them to know what that CSRF, okay, cool. So you mentioned that there's a middleware, that's that VS, verify CSRF token middleware, and there's a note that it only runs on like post and delete and patch, it doesn't run on Git. So that's yet another reason why you shouldn't have anything, you know, making side effects from a Git request. Absolutely, and uh, a tip I okay. give to a lot of newer developers as well, if you're confused about all the uh, put and patch and delete, which I've met a lot of developers who are like, should a soft delete be a delete or should be like a post? If you're confused, mm -hmm. by default, a good rule of thumb is if you are not making any changes, if it's purely transactional reading, use a get. If you're making any changes, mm -hmm. use a post. And that, yeah. along with good good practices, will keep you safe. I love that. Yeah. And it's it's cool to get into put patch, delete, and all those kind of things. But a lot of simple APIs just use post for them. And of course, an API developer might say, no, don't do that, blah, blah, blah. And it's, <laughs> it's good to learn those things. But I do think that's a great point from a security perspective and from just like a, the way the framework is expecting you to work perspective. You know, get if it doesn't make a change, post if it makes a change. I love that. That's a really great simple rule to start with, you know, even if you don't know all the other differentiations. Okay, that's CSRF. What else do you have? Going down the list. Okay, <laughs> let's get one of the things people everybody hates out of the way, course. Course is yes, the bane of it. every developer <laughs> and the root of millions of Stack Overflow posts when people are trying to figure out why they are failing. Course exists yeah. because we want to be able to develop APIs on different domains, different sites from our front ends. Mm -hmm. By default, when mm -hmm. JavaScript makes requests, it tries to make sure that it can only make those requests to websites on the same domain. And this is to prevent request forgeries like we talked about just now. And so what Course does is it says, it's okay for only this one website to make requests to me, even though we're not on the same domain. It all comes down to what's called the same origin policy, where a website can only get requests mm -hmm. from front ends on the same domain and course lets you get around mm -hmm. that. But what I'll say is the simplest way to handle course is the latest version of Laravel has a config file for course. And all you need to do right. is if you are developing mm -hmm. an API where the front end is going to be in a different domain or subdomain, in the course settings for that API, put the domain of that front end. That's all there is to it. Do not do okay. allow origin star, for example, unless you intentionally want it to be open to the world. Right. So if you're developing a publicly accessible API, you may have to allow origins for mm. that API, but you're still going to want to try to make sure that nothing else other than that, that publicly accessible portion gets that, right? Yes. This is okay. basically a, another mechanism to protect people from making requests to servers that they should not be able to make it from. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and we we tend to not want anybody to access our sites other than when we openly publicly open up APIs. And and often there's a note there that like a lot of people tend to eventually plan to open up their API. That doesn't mean you have to open it up today, right? Like Pretty you much. can build the whole API without allowing anybody else to use it until you're ready for that day. So absolutely. Okay, good point. All right, you got any other big ones? Because those I think those were the big ones I wanted to make sure you cover. I would love to keep going down your list, but I also know that you talked a little bit about design and wanting to think about it. So I would say from here forward, I just want to think about like what's what's next on your brain? Right. What do you want us to be thinking about? 
So let's slide a little bit away from pure code and a little bit more into application design as code, right? One okay. of the things yeah. which a lot of people forget about is the weak point of your application is always the authentication. Now, uh, there is a mm-hmm. fantastic Laravel podcast episode specifically about authentication and authorization, the auth stuff. But I would like to uh, and really put a lot of emphasis here on rate limiting, logging, and allowing mm-hmm. two-factor authentication when possible. Because okay. no matter how good your security is, if you have a door which people can try to knock on and say, I'm Bob, I'm Dave, I'm John, and just say <laughs> every name possible, eventually they will get through. Yeah. And so rate limiting yeah. to lock out people after enough attempts, allowing two-factor, and logging the fact that people are logging in or failed to log in, all of that are critical pieces to being able to hold okay. up a good security system. All right, so rate limiting, we get at least the ability to add rate limiting mm. by default in Laravel, but I don't think it's turned on on anything other than API routes by default, right? Yeah, I think it's only for API routes because APIs are very easy to just harvest information from. Yeah, so we do want to do rate limiting on authentication things, which I think is pretty easy. I think there's even a throttle middleware where you can just mm. say on the authentication page, login page, maybe the password reset page or something. Well, I guess it would only be the login page. You want to rate limit that. So that's that's a pretty simple one to add. Um, you mentioned logging. Could you talk a little bit about, because I've always, like when I first built Karani, again, I logged every problem, everything that could be a smell, but eventually I just got overwhelmed by reading all of them. And then I stopped reading all the logs. And at that point I did, I said, well, it may be logging them, but what good does that do me? So how do you think about logging as something that can have enough information to be useful, but also that we can actually attend to? So this is a, this is a great shift over to thinking about security, not as technology, but as policy. Right. The mm-hmm. reason we need logs is if stuff goes wrong. And I don't like to say if in that case, I prefer to say when stuff goes mm-hmm. wrong because inevitably something will <laughs> right. happen. Right. Yeah. A lot of companies have extremely good security, but they don't have a plan to do what happens when they get broken into. Mm-hmm. And when somebody has the misfortune of getting their application or service or website broken into, they need to be able to quickly, one, detect that it happened to identify Mm -hmm. who has been impacted, and three, Mm -hmm. contact those people, and four, tell them what to do. Logging accomplishes that second part and helps do the third and fourth part. I love that. That's a really great point. Logging is not a... Uh, it's not something that you're proactively monitoring necessarily, although you could you could do that with something that like watches, you set rules in your logs. It's more about having the information available to you when you need it um, rather than something went wrong and now you're like, well, we don't know what happened. Wish we had logged all that, right? It's, it's actually kind of scary when you think about it. How many websites get hacked, but they just don't know or they get yeah. hacked they know months ahead <laughs> because their data is on the market? Yeah. Sheesh. Okay, so that's the logging part. And what was your third? You had a third component of this that I just got so stuck in logging. I didn't even remember what it was. 2FA. Okay, so I know that 2FA is being added to a lot of the like jet stream and stuff like that. Mm. Um, but have you been doing 2FA with a particular package or anything like that you really like in the past? I actually tend... Okay, so when we're talking 2FA, just to be clear, we're talking about making sure that people can authenticate using a device or something else they have access to other than just their username and password. And But right. colloquially, when people say 2FA, they're usually talking about an authenticator app or something like that, which is dedicated for doing that. And there are really good packages, and there's an open protocol for how to do 2FA. So it's actually oh, surprisingly cool. easy to do 2FA. A lot of people are scared about it because it seems scary. You'll read all these 
documents about like oh, we should just do all auth and all these back and forth. But in fact, it's really yeah. just a factor of following a spec, and then you'll just people will be able to pull up any app on their phone that supports that spec and use it. But personally, okay. I also have no qualms about people doing two FA through text messages, through Slack messages, through any other avenue they'd want to, okay. with the warning that. If you allow people to authenticate using another mechanism, you are also opening a new potential security hole. Right. So you need to be yeah. very careful. That's about why that. a lot of people say don't do SMS to FA because now all of a sudden all the ways that SMS is potentially mm. vulnerable to social hacking or whatever now become your security concern as well, right? Absolutely. You can have okay. multiple layers but, to slow people down, uh -huh. but just don't yeah. rely on one at a time. Yeah. Okay. All right. So those are your three for for design. Are there any other kind of concept aspects of that particular piece that you want to talk about? Well, uh, I think it's impossible to talk about authentication without talking about authorization. So yeah. if you just want to get that one out of the way, I would yeah, let's do it. Repeat the same advice I gave earlier, which is test it. Authorization is extremely yeah. easy to test because if you have any sort of end-to-end -end testing, which Laravel provides for free then all yeah. you need to do is make some dummy users attempt a request and just assert the response uh, status code. It's super easy. Yeah. You have some baked-in tests. You can run at any time to make sure you're still protected. And the other addendum I would add there is most people, when you think off, they just think uh, any sort of ACL or any sort of controlling through either maybe a role base or maybe they'd use uh, any other mechanism to identify who is who and who has access to what. But when you're doing yeah. that, be sure to be very aware, do all those people in that group need all that access? It's very mm -hmm, easy to say, mm -hmm. just give admins access to everything. But when it comes to security yeah. and privacy, it's important to remember that w people are liable for what they know. If people don't know mm -hmm. something, they are not liable for it. And so it's yeah. in everybody's interest for you to limit and to lock down that access to only those who actually need it. Yeah, I love that point. And that's especially helpful when you 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 think there's going to be one admin super account and you either say, well, everybody at the company who I'm building this app for is now going to use that one admin account or we want more admins and, you know, well, they need to do this one thing that's in the admin role, so they must do all the things. And if you've ever learned about the privacy liabilities that a company has, one of the first questions they ask is how much private data can how many people get access to? And the more people that are on that list, the more liable you are. And also the more you have to care about like, well, how is their, how, how well is their computer set up protected or mm. whatever, right? So like you say, oh, we can limit our liability, not even just privacy, but like our, our legal liability by limiting who has access to potentially damaging information. That's actually a really wise decision just for the sake of the client, let alone for the customers. That's a great point. That's quite funny often because uh, whenever one of my colleagues or coworkers mention, "Hey, do you want to have access to this guy's account, or do you want to have do you need a do you need database <laughs> credentials?" And I'm like, "No, I would prefer no. not to have it. Like, <laughs> I am legally safe if I don't have it. Add me when you yep. need me, and remove me when I no longer need it. That's a really yep. important as habit. a as I love that as a consultancy when people offer offer us um, production database dumps, we're like, please no, please <laughs> offer it straight Can up." We, yeah, well, because a lot of them, they don't have um, migrations and seeds and everything Absolutely, like that. And so yeah. they say, oh, well, this will be the best way for you to get it. And of course, usually they'll offer it and then somebody in their security team will say, no, you can't give that to them. <laughs> and I'm, so so usually it never actually gets to the point where we could have gotten it. Um, but I, I don't, never want to shame them or anything like that. But what I'll often say is this is a perfect opportunity for us to set up migrations and seeds for you so that everyone can have functioning local versions of this thing without you having to worry about exporting your, your production database. So 
but yeah, usually it's it's not that we actually get access to it. It's more like a well-intentioned individual offers it to us, and then somebody on their team says, no, <laughs> if, if, no, they can't have that. If I can talk about that for just a moment. See, half the problem yeah. here is that people don't have a instinct for security. Humans have mm -hmm. been around for quite a while now, and we've mm -hmm. developed and built in automatic instincts for, man, something smells a bit off in this room. Maybe I should go somewhere else or... I feel a little bit yeah. uncomfortable here. Maybe there's something about to happen. We have really good instincts, but we don't have that for security. We do, That is not yeah. built in because it's only been around for a few decades. And so yeah. developing a good security culture, like not accepting that information when it's offered to you or not accepting credentials when you don't need it, developers in particular mm -hmm. are extremely high risk because we mm -hmm. have access, we have keys to the kingdom. If you have a GitLab yeah. account and somebody breaks into your account, they can just commit code it deploys to the production and everything's lost. It's yeah. that culture yeah, has to be built up. That's a great point. Yeah, and we, there's a um, just something that just came out that a North Korean state actor was several were targeting security researchers at Google and a couple other places using um, things where they. I think they were saying, hey, can we pair program on this thing? I'm a young programmer. And they would send them over a Visual Studio project to work on that had an embedded DLL mm. that was malware and would all of a sudden run malware in the machines. And they were specifically targeting security researchers because they knew that they had access to more things than everybody else did. Mm. So it's, it's you know, obviously they're a little bit more the case than those of us as, as normal programmers. But I think that's a really, really great point. You know, like I don't, and, you know, not even just in terms of being hacked, but in terms of accidental mistakes. You know, if if I plug my local into the remote just to do a little bit of tests, then I'm now liable for accidentally running a, running a command that I didn't want to run on production. And and all of a sudden sending an email to 50,000 live users. And I can't ever do that if I never had the live production credentials in the first place. And the culture really contributes to that, doesn't it? I, I, one of the things, if I could change anything about the development uh, culture in our community, is the how, how we glorify cowboy coding sometimes. So if, it's fine. Push mm -hmm. it to production. I'm just going to log into Artisan on, on production. I'm just going to blast out these emails mm -hmm. to everybody where one little typo error will actually screw everything yep. up. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's interesting because I trust my, my team a lot, but by default, they don't get access to things. Uh, and and uh, there have been times where I think people have felt a little bit weird, like, well, wait a minute, like, don't you trust us enough to give us, you know, maintain access on all the GitHub repos? And I was like, well, when it's time, sure. But like, I don't want to have to all of a sudden realize that I like, you know, it doesn't even have to be malicious. It could be a mistake or whatever. It's so much easier for me to give out permission for things when somebody needs it. And when they ask for it, I'll give it to them, right? It's But it's just this default, everything is locked down. The same thing is true for our 1Password account. By default, you don't get access to anything unless I realize that you need it, and then I give it to you, you know, so that there's just less accidental possibility for that liability, so. You brought up another really good point there, which is use a password manager. How many teams have had to tell oh, them yeah. to grab a password <laughs> manager? You'd think developers would use them, but they don't. And yeah. one of the things people need to do when they're thinking about security, right, is recalibrate your risk factors. Because much like in the real mm -hmm. world, we are exposed to certain types of vulnerabilities more than others. But in real life, password reuse and misconfiguration are some of the most common mm -hmm. avenues of attack. And so you can have the world's most secure infrastructure. If one of your developers is reusing their password for SSH because you didn't mm -hmm. disable that for some reason, and they used that for their yeah. Facebook account and when it was hacked a few years ago, then it's yeah. basically it lost. Public, yeah. yeah. 
That's a great point. Yeah, and in terms of um, SSH and databases, one of the things that is nice is that if you're using Forge for everything, you are going to get brand new generated passwords and everything like that for all of them. It is relatively easy for us to invalidate one person's SSH keys across any servers they had access to, you know, if their laptop gets compromised or something like that. Um, but even then, let's say you have a server that has 15 websites on it, because people do that a lot, or 100 mm. websites. By default, the Forge user and its password will have access to all of them. And thankfully, recently, and for Forge users, I want you to notice this, um, you can now set up that a different user will be set up for every single new site that you set up. And so it's a little bit more work because you have to SSH in or whatever as different users every time, but it, it is allowing you to start walking down the road of different users um, per site so that if you don't you don't all you don't all of a sudden get 150 websites compromised if, if somebody got access to your Forge user, now they only got access to one website or whatever. And it's absolutely important that we develop that culture of taking it slow. Uh, one of my favorite yeah. one of my favorite experiences is if you ever go to Japan, or a lot of countries do this, but Japan is known for it. You will find that their mm -hmm. train drivers habitually touch every control on their dials and on their displays, and they will look outside. Huh. It's 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 basically a, a much more involved version of check your mirrors before backing up. And uh -huh. there needs to be developer equivalents. Like when you're accessing yeah. something, you need to habitually form that habit of, am I on the right user? Am I on the right place? Am I on the right server? Yeah. All of us have had that time. We're like, we're about to do something. We're like, wait a sec, that's not staging, that's production. <laughs> you yeah. gotta build yeah. in those habits. Yeah, and I, I, I love that because the, you, you wanna build the habits to always check. And if you don't have access to production, you yeah. don't, that habit doesn't have to be tested in that it's moment. Fine. So yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think I, I love the habits because I think one of the habits is if you just tell yourself every single time before I'm doing X, Y, Z, I will do ABC. Those habits aren't just helpful security. Like for example, one of the things that I kind of beat into the heads of every single new Laravel programmer when they join Titan is when you make a pull request, the first thing you do before you assign somebody to it is you read down the changed files list and you notice those dump and dies you left in there or those those typos. So every single time you do a pull request, read your pull request first. And that little change has changed my experience of reviewing other people's pull requests crazy because all of a sudden their brain is now in a different mode and they're able to see that thing that they didn't expect to be there and they fix it. And so you can build these practices, but you're talking about more about security practices, one of them being, hey, every single time you're about to do something, check where you're doing it or check what user you're on or anything. I love that. Are there any other practices that you think we could globally adopt in that same way or is it more just kind of contextual a lot of a lot of practices when you're just developing habits is all about making sure am i doing what i intend to do and what if mm -hmm. i'm doing something what may be affected by it but that being said mm -hmm. when it comes to uh habits and practices i'm kind of known somewhat in the community as the checklist guy because I love it. Matt, if you know, I have a 27-point checklist, which I went into before this recording, of every bit of make sure the iPad is here, turn the curtains down, set oh, the I air conditioning it. to minimum uh, fan speed, all the little bits. Uh -huh. And every single line of those, yeah. you know, came from an incident in the past where you forgot to do something. And so yep. add it to the list. <laughs> one thing I really like to tell people is humans have always worked because we write down what we learned last time. And so if you only develop the habits based on what you feel you need to be doing, you're not going to develop them fast enough. But instead, every time somebody does one of those pull requests, they leave something wrong in, don't just fix it and then accept mm -hmm. it and then move on. Write that down. Yeah. So next time you're doing it, you check it again. And that is how you flesh yeah. it out. And that's how you build the habit. I love that. I, I am also a checklist guy. We have a few checklist folks at Titan. And 
one of the things I've been spending a lot of this past six months doing is trying to recognize that we have 15 to 20 developers at Titan. I don't want their time to be spent redoing anything. I don't want their time to be spent making decisions that have already been made. But I also don't want the folks who are reviewing pull requests time to be spent uh, making sure things are standardized that could have just been a checklist in the first place mm. or could have been automated in the first mm. place. And so I love this. Like I've spent, I, I'm even building like bash scripts to automate the starting of new projects so we don't have to always remember to set up PHP code sniffer or whatever. And so this is, this is great. I love the idea of security checklists and deploy checklists and that kind of stuff. And obviously everybody's not going to do it that way. They're not instantly going to become the checklist person, right? Uh, um, but the idea of just building in the practice of here are the things I must do every time I do X, Y, and Z, and just building those as standard things that people do as programmers, I think it's a really great idea. I think it loops into what you said just now about protecting people from what they need to do. Because when you have a checklist, not only does it save time, it also makes them feel, I've done the steps I need to do. I don't need to sit there thinking, is there yeah. anything else I need to do? You've done the steps. Yes. If anything slips through, it's still your fault. But you can say, it wasn't yeah. on the checklist. Let's learn from it. Let's fix it next time. Yeah. And it saves you. You mentioned that. I'd love that. It saves you the mental overhead. Mm. And the more things that are known, you don't your your brain now doesn't have to focus on them every time. Do the thing in the checklist. And now your brain space is left for the creative things that are unique about this, which is what's great about frameworks in the first place. Right. We shouldn't all have to spend the first six months of every project writing authentication. Now we can just say, oh, I'm going to use Laravel. Cool. Now we get to spend the first six months writing stuff that is unique to this particular project. Similarly, with checklists, I don't have to spend X amount of brain power saying, did I remember to secure that? Did I remember mm. whatever? No, just follow the checklist and then move on. I love that. And pro tip, you can extend that even further through uh, what I like to do is I make artisan commands, which check health check oh, everything yeah. on the server. So if stuff is going uh -huh. wrong, I can run it and get a really quick diagnosis of the server and if everything is oh, going I wrong. Oh, I love that. And this folds right into security because what you can do is you can have, for example, a health check command, which also spits out last time admins logged in. Because when security flaws happen, okay. again, the most critical time are those first few minutes after it happened. Can you detect it before mm -hmm. the attacker can cover their, can cover their tracks? Or it can get all the get the database dumps out of you, and so if yeah. you're like, hang on a second, something's off, I'm gonna run the health check. You run the health check and you see, wait a second, Richard's not supposed to be awake. It's three a.m. and you call him and he's like, no, I'm yeah. sleeping. You know immediately. Those minutes are precious. That's the. Oh, that's really cool. Are there any like checklists or artisan commands or anything like that that are out there publicly that people could look to as like an example of the type of things that you would do for that? I'm not 100% sure. I've seen some checklists which just go over like general health. For example, the thing with checklists, right, is you can have really inane checklists. Like you can have like, mm -hmm. am I running out of disk space? That's a common problem. Right. Am I running out of memory? Yeah. Uh, which Git yeah. version is this running? Oh, no, it didn't pull the latest version. Just all the basic stuff out. But uh, yeah, go, I love that. going back to the thing we talked about just now about how you can build it as you go, Build it as you go. So as you and yeah. develop your application, every time something wrong happens, build it into that health check to see if it's happening again. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, and we have um, Spotsy has a couple packages, one that's called, I think, Server Monitor mm. and one that's similar. And they have a couple health checks built into them. And so we've just got an instance of that running for all of our sites that just says, OK, you know, are, are there any errors in this place? Uh, is the HTTPS certificate resolving correctly? All that kind of stuff. But it also allows you to write your own. And so sometimes checklists are good, but sometimes you can also get external you know, tooling mm. that checks that kind of stuff. And we, I'm also building a tool right now called Checkmate together with some folks um, that just lists out all of our Laravel applications in our GitHub and says, hey, are any of them you know, out of date with their Laravel? And so yeah. then it gives you a prompting to kind of respond. You know? So like just 
the more we can simplify it, automate this, you know, checklist, checkmate's not going to fix it for me, but it is going to give me a list of, of action items. So now I don't always have to be worrying, oh, are a couple of our apps not up to date? No, I just go to checkmate and I say, oh, I got to update those three or whatever. So yeah, I love that there's different angles for it and the best, the best ones come from your experience, right? Absolutely. Do you want to do, do that little detour right now about dev UX? Because that's something I'm really passionate about. Do it. Let's do it. Yes, absolutely. People don't vouch their dependencies. People decide, I want to have this little thing. I'm going to pull it in. And when you really think uh-huh. about it, I, I've had some of the most fun interactions in my work in Indonesia is I'll talk to like a business person and they'll be like, okay, how much is this application going to cost me? I'm like, well, the framework's free. This is free. That's free. Mm-hmm. This has a very generous $10 a month subscription. They're like, wow, you guys are kind of nuts. You just give out your code for free. <laughs> like in any other industry, yeah. that doesn't, that's not going to work. You're not going to have people giving out patents. But that's just yeah. how we work. That's we're cool like that. But at the same time, mm-hmm. it means underneath each web application or any application, there's a giant tree of dependencies, which you have never seen mm-hmm. in your life. And mm-hmm. it's possible one of them down that chain will have a vulnerability halfway up. And this is where mm-hmm. I think developer UX is essential. For the consumer side, for us, people who use packages, who use these open source magic kits, we need to make sure that we develop that culture of learning about how do you lock them down. Because, for example, even really high-level things like Elasticsearch or Mongo or Redis have no authentication by default. They just run. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. ostensibly, it's because they are expecting to run, in, for example, in Kubernetes or in some environment where that is locked down by people who are experienced. But Joe, yeah. developer who just graduated high school and is tinkering around, doesn't know that. And... Yep. If you are a developer on Elasticsearch or any of those services, make sure you provide that. You provide a simple checklist for, hey, thank you for using our tool. Here's how you secure it. Mm-hmm. For a while, I think I Elasticsearch that. even paywalled that stuff behind one of their subscription services. Redis doesn't even have any sort of authentication. It expects you to do it on a network side, which makes sense for a real application. Yeah. But a lot of people don't know that. Like, but, People are living on shared hosting yeah. still. Like People don't know how to do that kind of yeah. stuff. I love that. Yeah, this, this, this both the secure defaults and the the clear instruction for the least knowledgeable people about how to make sure that they're not biting themselves in the butt by, you know, like kicking, not biting. Anyway, they're not making a bad decision <laughs> by setting your thing up with the defaults. Um, I think that's a really great point. And that, again, that's one of the reasons why I really appreciate tools like Forge and stuff like that mm. is because I'm not a I'm not a professional DevOps person. Right. Like I know enough. I've been working in, you know, Linux servers for a long time, but I can't tell you that I know all the aspects of how, um, you know, Redis communicates over the network mm. and what its authentication scheme is like or anything like that. So I'm glad for people who automate those things. But I also love your idea that, like, people who are building anything targeting developers, you know, let's take the responsibility of helping those developers do the thing in the way that doesn't, you know, really put them in a bad situation later and we throw our hands up and say, oh, well, you know, I, I, it's not my responsibility. Like, well, people are going to use your tool, <laughs> you know, so take some responsibility for them. I love that. It's, I've met so many situations where like a documentation, for example, will tell you, oh, grab an API key. And you're like, what scopes do I need? Just everything? And uh-huh. like, well, look on Stack yeah. Overflow, they say use everything. So, uh, yeah. that kind of habit. And all of a sudden, yeah, you, yeah. No, I, I, and one, that's a thing I love about API scopes is 
when we implement them, it allows people to really kind of limit the potential damaging impact. I feel like mm. maybe that's something that people don't know a lot today about limiting the API scopes or limiting the database users access to things or limiting your um, your Ubuntu user and your server. You know, the more it's just like we were saying before, right? Like if I don't have production credentials in my table plus, I can't accidentally wipe the production database. If a database user doesn't have the ability to do anything other than read databases, then that database user being, you know, compromised doesn't doesn't hurt you as much. So absolutely. Limiting your your avenues of attack, your attack surface and what you are liable for. I like to ask that to newer developers who are talking about security. Tell me mm -hmm. what ways your application can be accessed. Like how do you log in? I'll be like, well easy, just username and password. But in reality, yeah. there's often this the attack surface is massive. Like you'll have the password resets, you have magic sign-in links, you have uh, auth, you have JWTs, you have all these different ways to access and you don't really think about it. Mm -hmm. And so again, reducing that surface, making sure that mm -hmm. uh, you're only enabling what you need, both internally and externally, like the ones you mentioned, and also mm -hmm. what people can use to attack you is essential. Just locking all that down. Yeah. We're not used to that in, on, as programmers. We're used to having all the options available yeah. to us. Yep, because it's a pain to have to lock things down yeah. because now you have to remember which user to log into or whatever. So yeah, there's definitely a value to be had in locking it down by default and then incrementally releasing access only when it's needed rather than having everything open by default. Absolutely. Okay, so we went down a little bit of a rabbit trail here. I know that you've got notes, so I'm going to ask you, what's what's next for you? What, what next do you want us to talk about? If I can piggyback off your platform, Matt, and... Yeah. say something which is really important, I think, to a lot of developers. And uh, foreshadowing, this might be a sneak peek into an upcoming talk I might do at some point. Oh, cool. Be very aware that security is only as good as it is usable. No matter how good mm -hmm. your metal, steel, titanium house door is, if there is a <laughs> doggo door underneath it and the dog can be trained to open door handles, it doesn't matter. Right. A lot of what I see when security issues happen is, so for example, a website will get hacked and people will get alerted, say, from the media saying, hey, if you used so-and-so e-commerce, your account is compromised. And mm -hmm. the company is obviously busy scrambling around. They don't have a checklist. They don't know what to do. They don't know the power structure. They don't know who's making the phone calls, who's locking down the servers. I have seen literal offices of people running around in literal circles because they don't know who has access to the servers, who's on today, who's on monitoring, yeah. who has the email password. Everything breaks loose, yeah. and obviously the attacker is making everything worse. And yeah. the users are left to fend for themselves. And so if you hmm. have a website which manages people's personal information in any way, even as simple as like a file uploader or something, like if you have people's personal information and you're important to somebody, then... Make sure you have the tools so users who are in a hurry to make quick changes to their account can do so. They should have a button to mm -hmm. delete their account quickly. They should have a button to check recent logins. They should have a button to mm -hmm. see where they logged in from, and they should be able to log out from other sessions which are ongoing, for example. Because mm -hmm. when we talk yeah. about security, we talk about these big hacks. But there's also a lot of small hacks day to day. Somebody's password gets leaked, or mm -hmm. somebody's password posted next to their monitor gets stolen by a disgruntled ex. <laughs> And these, yeah. these precision attacks happen daily, all the time. And users will panic, oh. and you need to spend time thinking about the usability of your software. If that password mm. reset button, if that delete account button, if the change email button, page, whatever, is too hard to use, it doesn't exist. So spend mm. time thinking about 
how will your users be able to react if they are compromised, for example? Can people extract their data? I love that. How do they change their password? How do they lock yeah. it down? Mm-hmm. It's another. It's almost another checklist, right? Because you've talked about mm. how do we respond when when our servers are hacked, but then you're also trying to think about what what things are you allowing the the, the user to do. Like, imagine yourself in their scenario. What would you want to do, and how hard is yeah. it to do those things? Like, how do I get rid of my yeah. my credit card? How do I check if they made a purchase off my credit card? Which credit card was it? People have multiple credit cards. All that chaos yeah. is happening. And as a UX designer, yeah, I find that more often than not, the biggest security failures are actually UX failures. Yeah. Huh, that's a really good point. Okay, so we have talked a lot. We talked a lot about application design. We talked about dev UX. We've talked about specific technical things that are difficult for people. I know it's just based on the length we've been on, we probably need to start wrapping it up. But I bet you have a couple other things you really want to make sure that we get to before we're done. So what are the other couple things we haven't got a chance to talk about that you really want to make sure we cover? Top one, and this is more of a personal note for me, is... Be careful yeah. with the words, I didn't think we needed security there. And be careful mm-hmm. of those band-aids you do because those are some of the most mm-hmm. common things people run into because they'll be coding something. They'll be like, oh, it's a hack thing. It's just a couple days. I'm just going to throw up a toy project. Just throw it together. But the problem yeah. is people's data doesn't care if you're a hack project or if it's a real one. And if you have yeah. users and they have information, I've seen uh, image hosting websites where the user are like, it's just people's photos. What could possibly go wrong? And then somebody who like has their dead grandparents' last photos in there suddenly lose access and they're mm-hmm. panicking. And mm-hmm. it's important to think that we as developers are in control of a lot of people's lives and a lot of people's happiness and a lot of people's privacy. And so, mm-hmm. again, that culture, that habit of treating everything seriously, of taking every request, mm-hmm. making sure that your website has a link to say, if you found a bug on my site, please email me here. There, there's a really good story mm. lately from a, uh, I think it was a phone case company who had a massive vulnerability, but the developer tried to contact them and they just never got a response. They contacted the, the customer support. They were like, what are you doing? Don't do this to us. They're like, I'm just trying to tell you what's wrong. Mm-hmm. And just having yeah. a plan for all that and taking everything seriously, taking security seriously is a mm-hmm. massive thing. And it's a culture thing, just like you said. Like, even if you don't have that find a bug link, there's probably a contact link somewhere. But if everyone's just terrified of it, then that it doesn't matter that they got in touch with you in the first place. What do you do? And when you're browsing, yeah. like, uh, I really like it when you're, like, browsing GitHub and you look, like, through issue threads and stuff. And you see people's, people complaining, how do I fix this problem with uh, course? And someone underneath it is like, ah, easy, mm-hmm. just, just add this one command or <laughs> just comment out this line in your vendor's. It's always stuff like that, man. It's always the small things which come back to bite you later on. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Any other things high on your list you want to make sure we cover before we wrap today? I think that's it. There's this this conversation can go on for hours, obviously. It's a massive landscape. (laughs) But I don't want to overwhelm people. And I think it's important that just developing the habit of developing the culture and knowing the common uh, attack vectors are very important. Mm Uh, as I know, you're going to go into like what resources uh, we want to go into here. Yeah. Let's just go there. I highly recommend, and this is more important than anything, is to stay up to date with recent attacks, recent occurrences. And that includes okay. knowing the version history and new releases of your frameworks and stuff like that. So if you're relying yeah. on particular frameworks or particular technologies, stay on top of those. For general yeah. purpose stuff, I also really recommend looking at global cybersecurity reports. So 
A really easy one to get your hands on is the Verizon Cybersecurity Report. They have one for 2020. And it breaks down the okay. types of attacks happening worldwide. So you can calibrate your risk factors. Oh, yeah. And they will talk about how okay. misconfiguration is more common an issue than, for example, password reuse. And just yeah. stay up, stay huh. tuned, stay up to date. OWASP is the obvious classic resource, but uh, MDN and Mozilla have their own like little interpretation, which might be a bit more applicable. Just stay in those communities, okay. keep your ear down to the ground, and listen up. I love it. Um, so if someone uh, – oh, hold on. Last thing. Hmm. Uh, second to last thing. Before we get to asking for people how to follow you and everything <laughs> like that, personal thing. So I, I told you at the beginning, I feel like you have been in the Laravel community for the longest time, and I just haven't known you at all. And I, I felt there was a couple things I wanted to ask you. One was just about your history, but the other one is I just said, I just got to be honest with you, I know nothing about Indonesia, nothing at all. You know, all, you know and I just... I know so little about Indonesia that I don't even know what I don't know. You know what I mean? I don't even know what to, what question to ask there. And one of the things you had mentioned was it's the I think the fifth largest, you know, most populous country and and we just don't know this. So for someone who, you know, as an American, I have general concepts of India and Pakistan and I have general concepts of a lot of kind of areas around you and I have so little knowledge of Indonesian culture at all if there was something where you would say if anybody knew one thing about Indonesian culture I would wish I wish that they would know about this or or as we think about visitors to Indonesia the first thing we want them to do is to see or to try or to experience this what would that be for you so Indonesia as a people we are more we are not very outspoken like, of course, mm -hmm. we, there's outliers for every in every community. But Indonesians are one of those very strong family base, like you would expect in Asia, honestly, where you can come to a family, you can mm -hmm. have a chat, you can sit down with them, you can listen to their life stories just like mine. And they'll probably be a lot, be a lot more interesting, to be honest. And if no. anybody is going to come <laughs> to Indonesia, I, I just highly recommend just going out. Like, here's the problem. We're in the tropics. If there's one thing I could mm -hmm. borrow from you guys in the West and in the upper latitudes, mm -hmm. it's please give us some of that cold weather. Like the fact that we can't go out. <laughs> People ask why we don't have pedestrians here. And it's because it's 38 uh -huh. degrees out there it's sometimes. So hot. It, it doesn't make uh -huh. sense. But when tourists come here and they visit Bali, because Bali is always the most common tourist spot. Mm -hmm. At the yeah. same time, just go out to a random village and say hi. And people will be more oh, than yeah. happy to just spend some time, chat and relax. It's... Some of that uh, older Asian experience, I think, which is slowly being lost as larger countries like India and China mm -hmm. are rapidly developing. Indonesia is a little bit, little yeah. bit underneath there. Like we're just catching up, and so yeah. a lot of people are very eager to make new friends, meet new people, learn about the world. Sometimes we get That's a bit cool. of a reputation of being a little bit behind, and obviously, as a as a once colonized country, that's kind of inevitable. But mm -hmm. sometimes yeah. we just need to get to know more people. As you said, we yeah. have a big population, but none of them have ever met anybody. And we are very open to visitors huh. once all this is over, blown over for obvious reasons. But right, right, when people can actually when people travel. When people can actually again. travel. Uh, I hope hospitality <laughs> in Indonesia will be something uh, people really enjoy. Oh, I love that. And I, you, you, you taught me how to pronounce it, and I already have Jakarta. Jakarta. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, the, the Jakarta. Jakarta. Um, so is is that the largest city, is the capital? I mean, because when I think of Indonesia, those are the two things mm. I think of is Jakarta and, and Bali. Mm. Is that the main kind of tourist area, main place where flights come into and everything? Jakarta. Okay. Uh, if you want to play a guessing game. Well, okay, fine. I'll make it quick. 
my company is based in Finland. I work for Yovila, a recruitment company based in Finland. And I'm just going to say mm-hmm. my district in Jakarta is more populous than the entire country of Finland. Jakarta has, what? I want to say, roughly 40 <laughs> million people in the metro area. Um, we're one wow. of the world's largest right up there with places like Tokyo and stuff like that. And yes, Jakarta mm-hmm. is the nexus, but I would consider Jakarta more of the L.A. of Indonesia. It's a business yeah. district, mm-hmm. not as much a cultural district. It's an mm-hmm. econo- economic district, financial district. So, but mm-hmm. yes. Uh, hop on down. This is the the nexus basically where people just drop in, hop on another plane, go somewhere, yeah. go. I was just gonna say you're gonna fly into there and then you're gonna get your flight out to where you want to go if you want to more of a cultural. Experience. Pretty much, but Jakarta um, is one of those cities where you'll find a skyscraper right next to a traditional. I don't want to say village, but just basic housing of like middle. Uh-huh. Uh, what you would expect from like a, a, de- a developing Southeast Asian country. So there are places to explore really in Jakarta. Cool. If you like exploring, just want to have a wander and also just hit me up. Yeah. Indonesia is a very open place. I love it. I'm I'm hoping to get back to Laravel, Australia. So I'm just trying to think about like what excuses <laughs> am I going to have at some time in the near future to be eight hours, time, eight, eight time zones away anyway. So the idea to just be able to drop into a major hub and just kind of like mm. hit my friend and, and wander for a day, that sounds pretty nice. So maybe I'll get to see you once, once it's all over. Top tip about that, Indonesia has one of the world's most open visa policies. Well, again, once really? all this is, is blown over. Basically, mm-hmm. if you have mm-hmm. a passport, you can you can basically get here. That's almost guaranteed. Just <laughs> show awesome. up, rock up, That's say wonderful. you know Rizki, and just walk in. <laughs> yeah, oh, everybody knows him. Yeah, there's 40 million people here, but we all know him anyway. <laughs> yeah, we're a tight family. Okay. Like that. Yeah, right. Okay, so the one other thing is I feel like, and I could be wrong in this, but I feel like you have been in the Laravel community since the earliest days. And I mentioned this to you before, but you're one, there's a lot of people who I know from the early days who I've had some reason to like actually meet face-to-face at mm. a conference or something like that. And I feel like I've known you from the earliest days, but only from a distance. Am I right that you have been using Laravel for a long time? What's your like your origin story with Laravel? Uh, yeah, I've been around for a very long time, but I think I really cut my teeth on the community through IRC back then. And... Yeah, really, and I was in IRC too, so that must yeah, be, that must have been back yeah. then, back in the good old days of when we'd have <laughs> right. all the people in the IRCs. It, it's it's different, man, nowadays, but it's it's yeah, it's, it's quite nice now. because the community back then was quite a bit smaller, and like uh, even till today, mm-hmm. like I go to Laricon EU almost every time I can because Sean is a mm-hmm. good friend, and we can just meet up with the community there. That's the Laricon community is more open and more of a society than just a programming forum. Which a lot of people think it is. Yeah, for sure. Have 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 we met at Laricon EU? And I'm forgetting because I do that all the time. And if, if so, I feel like an awful human being. I don't think so because I think I, I just keep okay, missing. <laughs> I've been looking for you sometimes during Laricon EU's um, because I have mm-hmm. a bad habit of preparing my talks the night before. <laughs> I I just yeah escape. totally no me too yeah yeah people think yeah, I no, mm-hmm. the night. Go ahead. Now people think we're prepared. I don't, the night before is a little panic day. Just getting everything crammed in. Yeah. I mean, no, no matter how much preparation I do, I'm still so anxious the night before I'm working on it anyway. So, yeah, I've missed the last couple of EUs, unfortunately, because they always overlap with my son's birthday. Oh, and I I've see. just promised my kids that I'm, I'm never missing your birthday for a work thing. And so every time, every year, I'm like, Sean, when's it going to be? Take him to Amsterdam. He's like, well, I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly. I was, I'm thinking about it. Honestly, it's kind of tempting now. He's a little bit older. So, but yeah, so um, so that's why I keep missing them. But I, I, I love Laracon EU, wonderful community, wonderful group of people, and hopefully I'll get back there one day. So. And then All right, so oh, go on ahead. that case, I really hope I'll be able to visit Laracon US and we can yeah. meet there as well. The flights, man. The flights. Yeah, that would be awesome. 
I know. Yeah. I, I still can't believe people come up from Australia and, <laughs> and other places that are so far away. Um, okay. So if people think you are wonderful, which I'm sure they do, and want to follow you or to you know give back to what you're doing or anything like that, what would that look like for them? Uh, I can always be contacted by anybody on Twitter. Uh Risky mm-hmm. underscore DJM because Twitter, for arbitrary reasons, doesn't allow my full use my full name, which is Risky Jamaluddin, because it's too long. Uh, so that's Romeo really? India Zulu Quebec India underscore Delta Juliet Mike. And I know that's hard, so I I hope it'll be accessible in the show notes. It'll or be somewhere. in the show notes too. I hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't yeah, tweet be very late. often because I am not that type of person, as in I like being a little bit uh, off the grid, shall we say. But I am always uh-huh. open to DMs, and if people want to consult or ask or just discuss, I am more than happy to chat. And if you want to take it somewhere Love else it. too, I am more than happy. I'm, I'm also on Laravel Slack and various other communities, so if you find me there under my name, Risky, just hit me up. Awesome. I, you, you are amazingly open to help for somebody with the amount of knowledge that you have, so I really, really appreciate <laughs> you, you being willing to jump on. You know, with somebody you don't really know very well. I mean, I like you a lot. I'm glad we're friends now. But like, and just share all this stuff. So thank you so much for all the contributions you've made. Um, and I, I would assume that if you were to do more talks in the future, they would be listed there. So that mm-hmm. might be a good place if people even just want to follow you. Maybe not a lot of tweets, but when there's going to be some more uh, content that you're creating, it will be listed Absolutely. there. So that's definitely there are stuff idea. coming down the pipeline. Okay. Don't worry. There we go. So so follow follow Risky purely for that reason. Well, I had a ton of fun. You mentioned this, and of course, everybody knows this, but I could talk to you for three more hours about this, and I'm learning so freaking much. So um, I look forward to digging a lot of these things. All y'all, if you liked all this stuff, everything's going to be in the show notes. And as always, if we miss anything in the show notes, let us know and we'll fix it up. And yeah, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. See y'all next time.